Welcome to Pure Curiosity. This is your host, Iris McAlpin, and I invite you to join me in this exploration of what it means to be human in our modern world. Here you may find answers, but I hope you'll find even more questions and allow curiosity to guide you forward. Let's begin. All right. Hi, Yolanda. Thank you so much for joining me. I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks, Aww. so... I'm so glad we're here. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm actually really, really excited about having this conversation. Well, I would love to just start by inviting you to share a little bit about who you are and what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I So I am a licensed professional counselor. I am working full-time at a community agency. Um I am bilingual, so I serve a lot of, uh, like, in both languages, but I I live in a border town. So most of, of the people with whom I work uh, are from, this, from my community. So I serve a lot of Hispanic immigrants. My background, I have worked with different client populations, but right now I'm focusing um, in, like, working with people who have trauma, anxiety, depression, I mean, you name it. We might probably will talk about it a little bit. And then um, I do a lot of uh, somatic work in my sessions. Oh, cool. Very cool. So the thing I, I wanted to absolutely talk to you about is your your hashtag, which I absolutely love, You Make Sense. And there's so many questions I could ask you about that, but I guess I'll just start with what is it about that phrase that that is so important for you? You know, I I think at the beginning I, I started with a hashtag just because I wanted to capture what I want to like the message that I want to give in my platform and but then I think the more that I started using it that the and the more I. <laughs> It's funny because the more I like do it and during sessions, like when it comes up, like, well, well, it makes sense that you do this because, and it's like, <laughs> oh, I got, like, I feel like I'm <laughs> it's kind of weird to be honest, like to do that in session. But I think the essence uh, for me of that um, is that there's nothing absolutely that's wrong with us, but we are a product of our temperament and our environment and that absolutely everything about us makes sense when we understand it in the context of our own experiences and I think that's what I that's kind of like the work that I try to do with myself from understanding my neurodivergence to understanding all of these aspects of myself that I don't necessarily like right and then also in my work with people, not only for them to see that about themselves, which I feel like it's a very, com- like creating compassion um, towards themselves, which then I feel like it just, when you, when you practice compassion, then all of the threat comes down and you can actually feel safe to explore the whys. Um, and I also feel like it's, for me, as I'm working with someone, I try to always be mindful of this, that in my work with them, they always make sense. My work is trying to understand how and helping them explore that. So trying to 
obviously when you when you're in the therapist it's you're always trying to make connections right uh, and remembering things about that happened in the past and and trying to see how those fit in the present and so so that's kind of how I see it I I feel like it, it it's in all aspects not just for the person with whom I'm working but for myself and in the work that I help I, I try to help them do yeah I'm just imagining there might be people listening who are hesitant to embrace the idea that the way that they are makes sense. There's often this sort of, especially if you've been in the medical system for a long time, like, oh, there's something wrong with you that you feel this way or that you think this way. And so if someone has internalized that and feels like, no, the things that I'm doing don't make any sense, how do you start to approach that with people? Because I'm imagining that Maybe some of the people that, that come see you where you work aren't necessarily people who follow you on Instagram and, and know your philosophy. So how do you start to, to help people connect to these, these ways that they really do make sense? Yeah, I don't think any, any one person, one, one person with whom I work uh, found me on Instagram and I freaked out. <laughs> oh my God. But no, like, so yeah, so absolutely, they don't know my work. So I... Uh, it can be that they feel hesitant embracing this idea. I'm very transparent from the beginning of my work. I explain, I do a lot of explaining about the brain, the body, the fight flight response, um, protective mechanisms, you know, so like how our survival mechanism works like, or coping adaptations, whatever words you want to use to describe this, but I use them all in system, <laughs> nervous system dysregulation. So I, I think that really helps for them to not be like oh it's just a matter of me thinking about it and I should think different like it's actually like there's something very biological going on and and that I have no control over because it's very automatic so I I think that part helps a lot the other part is they they don't really like the idea or they find it probably scary because I think a lot of people still connect it to well, you're not going to do anything to fix it. Like if you understand that, then you're then you're going to just accept it, and that's how life is going to be forever. And when that happens, then we go into well, what do you do now instead? And we find a lot of the time that it's a lot of self judgment and criticism, right, and freezing overwhelm and freezing so then I go into explaining like how compassion actually can help us feel um, calmer and when we feel calmer and feel safe we'll then feel safer and when we feel safe more change can actually happen right so yeah. I really love that way of thinking about it because Sometimes self-compassion is talked about as just sort of this like magical phenomenon that just, you know, dissolves everything. But it really does just help us feel more secure within ourselves and, and safer to be who we are. And as you said, when we feel safer, things start to shift. I think um, when we feel safe of course we have more access to our rational mind <laughs> and we right. can be more analytical so we we're not in this state of just trying to change things we can evaluate things and we can be more logical about like 
okay, what can change realistically and what things are completely out of my control, right? And what are the things that I can do and what are the things that I can't do? And and then once I figure those out, maybe I can take steps, right, to change those things that I want to improve on and be more accepting of, of those that I can't. Because it doesn't matter how much I don't like something. If I can't if, if I can't change it or if there's no avenue to change this part of myself, it, it doesn't matter how much I hate it, right? Like I'll just be criticizing and judging it, but nothing will change. There's um, this Argentinian author, I, I've quoted him before. Um, it, he is amazing. His name is Jorge Bucay. I've learned a lot from him. And one of the things that he says is that whenever I accept myself, I can change. And he talks about this being key because if you're fighting with who you are, it will be very difficult to change those parts of you. It's it's so counterintuitive for so many people, and it it was for me for the longest time. I think I really entered into healing from this place of like, okay, I'm gonna kill off all the parts of myself that I don't like, and then I'll be great. Like everything will be great. And I really tried that approach for quite a long time, and obviously it didn't turn out so well. So I had to <laughs> shift gears. But I I'd be interested to hear your perspective on on why that's such a common belief that if we, if we accept who we are, if we're kind to ourselves, then that's just going to be giving myself free reign to just, you know, be a monster, you know, which obviously it's not, but that, that is a pretty common belief. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can't tell you exactly like where it started, but I can tell you that a lot of the things that as we function in a society look very similar, starting with parenting, right? We feel like if somehow we are not in control, then everything's going to blow up. And the thing is that not everything, we can't really control at all. A lot of things that we think we can control, including our children. Right. So I think, um, so, so I understand why people think this way and why people are scared, especially, right, if it's an area of yourself that you don't like, it, then you have this person who's telling you to, to accept it. And then it can be scary to have that thought. That if you accept it or make peace with that, uh, what, what will happen? You know, I, I can understand how that is that is scary for people. But at the end of the day, when you start having more understanding instead of judgment and more acceptance instead of just criticism and a hate for that part of you, then you can't then you begin to actually understand it. You cannot really begin to understand and explore a part that you haven't been able to make peace with, right? And not even like talking about acceptance. I'm just talking like this. there's this part of you that you hate. And if you don't like it, you're going to avoid it and everything that has to do with it, right? So when are you ever going to understand it? from that point 
you're not, like, I know that if there's something that I don't like, I'm not trying to understand it, <laughs> whether that's a person or something, you know, like, and I think that's why compassion and, and acceptance and acceptance just means you accept that this part exists. It doesn't mean that you have to like it. It doesn't mean that you, that you have to love it, right? It's just like, you know, it's there. You accept that it's there. And yeah, it's okay to have the emotions that you have about it, but it's there. So now when you are in that point, you can begin to explore it a little bit more and ask more questions and be more curious. And when compassion sits in, then you can actually start exploring more of your emotions around it. Because if you feel compassionate about this, you're going to be more curious, right? Uh if we think about it in, in the context, for example, of like another person, if I dislike another person, I'm not going to try to understand that person. If I accept that this person is this way, it doesn't mean that I accept them in my life necessarily, but it means that I under like just accept that they are who they are. But if I have compassion for this person, then I'm actually trying to understand and I'm actually taking in more of who they are as a person and the why they are the way that they are. And I think that's when we do that with ourselves, then we start learning more about ourselves. And I think that's why change can become more effective that way, because then we we actually begin understanding why we are the way that we are and that sometimes it's okay to be the way that we are and actually makes perfect sense. And we don't necessarily have to stop doing that. Right. I love thinking about it in that sort of externalized way. Cause it's true. If you, you hate someone, the chances that you are going to want to be curious about them and get to know what their needs are and, you know, what their past traumas were and why they are the way they are is, is pretty low. If you can just access some of that curiosity and just like, okay, this exists, then, then that doorway is at least a little bit open. So that's a really, really helpful visual. Something I would be very interested to to hear you talk a little bit more about because you, you sort of started to to broach this when we talked or when you talked about parents trying to control their kids I know you talk a lot about childhood experiences and how what happens to us in our early life shapes some of our traits and, and challenges as adults and it's an incredibly broad topic, but what are some things that maybe just things that you've been inspired to, to write about recently that you notice connections between early childhood experiences and then challenges people have later on? I love this conversation because when we understand this piece, I feel like it can unlock so much for us. And in my own work, understanding this piece of how important our childhood experiences are shaping who we are as adults, it really 
it really helps us understand why we show up the way we do in our relationships and in our in our work and as uh, parents. It used to be that people would think like, okay, those experiences happened when you were a child, but now you're an adult like that. That is already in the past. And the way that I like to explain it, and like I was like, I'm so passionate about this, like you have no clue because I, <laughs> it all comes down to our wiring and why humans, um, or not why we're alive, but like the, as we are alive, what is our body interested in doing first? And when we start thinking about this, like I feel it all makes sense. Our body, our body's main goal is survival. Like there's nothing that is more interesting to our body or more important to our body than surviving because what good would any of it be if we are not alive? Yeah. Right? And so as long as we're alive, that's all that matters. Second, like it's avoiding pain in any way because that's a threat that can be emotional, psychological. So when we are when we are uh, born or before we are born, our body is building for survival. To me, that's the best way that I've become, like I understood it. So if you had a parent who had a really stressful uh, pregnancy or there was a lot of, um, a lot of uh, family dynamics that were not healthy, your body is wiring for that because your body wants you to be prepared for that environment that you're going to enter into. This is also why epigenetics, right, is so important because even before you are conceived, your parent is wiring for your survival. So when you're born, <laughs> the main the main, main job, and that this happens between zero, age zero and six, 90% of your brain will be developed by age six. And all of your experiencing experiences, what, what they're doing is they're wiring your survival, right? And so what you have to survive or what you have to survive is very different than what I had to survive. So your wiring is going to be very different than, than mine. So if somebody grew up in a very abusive household, their surviving mechanism has to be uh, attentive vigilant and that's not a bad thing because that's what that body needs to survive so sometimes we think oh well survival is just like actually like uh, not dying but in reality it's just your body wants to give you the best odds that you make it out alive but also it wants to avoid or, or, or decrease the pain all of the pain, right? That it can. And that's our wiring. And so when we see it that way, we can understand that our experiences from birth or before birth till, till uh, our adulthood, our body is constantly scanning our environment to wire for survival. And so our responses have to match that. If I have a parent who's always yelling, then my body is going to be attentive to that and will try to avoid me receiving that in any way that it can or minimizing the impact of that. And that might be that I start to defend myself against that or that I 
freeze or avoid that, right? And that is my survival mechanism. And so why would my body think all of a sudden my life will be different and I will be an adult and life is good? No, I still will have this survival. So now the work that I do as an adult is sometimes we create a different environment and sometimes not because we we have this built-in mechanism that is uh, kind of like following patterns, right, in, in adulthood in our relationships. But the work that we do as adults is trying to break away from that early survival mechanism that was established. And it will take more time. It's entirely possible, but it will take more time to do, right? Because the early foundations are the only ones that we know. And a lot of the times these were repetitive and they happen again and again. And the more the more something happens, the more your your body and your brain will make the connection that is something that will happen in your life. So you have to protect yourself yourself from that. I think that when I learned to see it that way, then it was like, oh my God, like we've been sold this story that as adults, we're completely responsible for our actions. And then it's like we weren't given the handbook or like the instructions, right? right? I think a lot of people have this idea. I mean, and it sounds really nice that, you know, once you turn 18 or however old you are when you leave the house, that suddenly it's like our system gets a total upgrade and we're just no longer affected by all the things that led to us getting to that point. Because I just, I hear a lot with with clients and in different circles, you know, this happened so long ago, shouldn't I be over this already? Shouldn't this be in the past? Shouldn't I be further along? And I wish, yeah, again, I wish it were that simple but like you said if we're sort of steeped in this environment and we have to come up with very clever strategies to manage the stress of our environments those strategies don't just you know poof vanish into the air the moment that we leave the house and and it's very important to remember right that this is the only thing our body knows like right. let's say that as a child you always had to be on edge or like you, you felt on edge around your caregivers. Right. And so that carried on to your relationships. If your adaptation was that you had to be on edge because being on edge means you're hyper aware and very careful of what you're doing. There is no pattern of not feeling that way. There's no pattern. So where are we going to get these connections from? They don't exist. <laughs> they literally are not like exist, don't exist. And this is why the we're finding out that there are protective experiences. I know that um, a lot of people are familiar with the ACEs, you know, like the adverse childhood experiences. And then there are protective mechanisms against this. And one of the what some of them are like just having a caring adult in your life or right. being engaged in activities, being involved in community. These are protective things that if you grew up in a household that was very chaotic, chaotic and then you had this other connection or sense of safety somewhere else, it actually helped you. But some people don't even have that, right? And so, and even if you had this, let's say, really caring teacher in your life, then you learn that, hey, like, oh, not all people are like this, right? Like, there's other people who are different. But if you're exposed to this, 
98% of the time and throughout your life, but then you just had this caring teacher that one year, like, obviously, like, this is the, these are the connections, um, the home and your home are where most of the connections were built for safety. But now there's this information that things can be different and not everyone mm-hmm. has that. And those are actually what you build in therapy, right? Yeah. Have you by any chance seen the documentary Paper Tigers? No, I haven't. Uh, I'm sure you would really like it, but it's about a school. I forget where it's located, but it's a school that incorporates trauma-informed education into the curriculum in a a community that has a lot of really high-risk youth. And they, they talk about that specifically, that just having this one adult in your life who believes in you, who can model different behaviors, can teach you healthy conflict resolution, these kinds of things even if your home life is is really intense, that becomes sort of an anchor point, or at least this this crack in the monolith that like, this is how things are. This is how my relationships have to be. It's really powerful. You know, and if you really think about it, it's again, your brain is wiring, right? And you're getting information that is different from what you know. I think sometimes like people also struggle with the concept of, childhood experiences being so impactful but your brain is literally developing while these experiences are happening as an adult right your brain is already developed so experiences that you encounter it doesn't it doesn't mean that they will impact you but it means that you have depending on the resources that you already have it will be a good predictor or I guess, I don't want to say predict, but if you have a really healthy upbringing as an adult, right, you have more resources resources to deal with difficult situations than if you struggled uh, as a child, you had all of these experiences, your brain was constantly in overload and your um, survival mechanism was active, then of course, if things adverse things happen in the future, then you have less skills to cope and tools to cope with those life situations. So it's all, I mean, a big, big part of it is in our early wiring. And I know that there are experiences that can happen that are traumatic as adults, but we also understand that if you have, you had a healthier upbringing that is a protective factor for later life experiences. The same thing when growing up, right? Like you had a lot of um, abuse or there were a lot of things happening in, in your childhood. Then as an adult, like that, it will be more difficult to cope with things because you don't, you didn't build in your, those resources. Yeah. So for people listening who... Like maybe they even know that their ACE score is high, for example, or maybe they just know that they went through a lot when they were growing up and maybe they're thinking, well, shit, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't have the resources. What do I do? Um, which is a valid question. What would you say about that? Having a, a difficult childhood is not a life sentence, right? It just means that uh, depending, everyone's different, and it just means that your process might look different. And that's important because if you had a really tough childhood growing up, then it 
it might mean that your process might take longer in terms of how, like, you need more time to integrate things that you didn't learn when you were a child. So now you're building those connections as an adult. Um, because of neuroplasticity, we understand that it's completely uh, possible to rewire our brain. Of course, if there was just one incident or something that happened in my life or or one area in my life where those needs didn't get met, it might be much easier, right, to work through that than if there were a lot of things happening that where my brain really had to wire for survival. So I think understanding that it's like we can change no matter where we are. We can always feel better than where we're right now. The process might just look different. And I know a lot of people hate to hear that, and I completely get it, because who wants to hear that their process will take longer, you know? Yeah. And and I, I, I know that people hate like or dislike when we use the word like we need to go slow it's like how slow it's been <laughs> it's been three months and I hate this like I don't want to feel like this anymore yeah um so I get that you know and then we also have to remember that sometimes it's years and years and years of using this same programming our body has been really working on trying to protect us for years and years and years and mm-hmm. And when we tell her body that it's safe now, it will take some convincing to do. <laughs> Because um, since we work based, a lot, of, a, a lot of our automatic reactions happen as a result of our programming, then if our body already makes that connection that who we are in this moment is safe, why, or it, it's keeping us safe, Why would it want to change it? So, of course, it's going to sound alarms. And, of course, it's going to feel, like, really hard to change some parts because your brain is saying, like, why would you do that, right? Why would you put yourself in that situation? Let's say, for example, like, you're a person who who went through a lot growing up. And in that situation, you learned that you couldn't trust people because people hurt you. And now, as an adult, you understand that you can choose relationships different. But it might be that because of some of the patterns that we've been repeating, you might go into relationships that were not healthy. So that only reinforces your early programming, right? So now all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I'm learning about the red flags and <laughs> green flags. <laughs> and and, and I think I, I want to be more trusting and I want to lean more into the discomfort of a new relationships. Of course, your body's going to sound all alarms and it's going to try to keep you from changing, right? Because it wants to keep you safe from that. So one of the things that I like to tell people is whenever you hit like a bump that you feel like I can't change this or it's this is continuing to happen or I can't get out of this uh, emotion or, or, or this thought, then like what purpose is it serving, right? How is it trying to protect you? I think um, IFS, internal family systems, um, you know, it does a really good job of, of talking about how all of these parts play a role. Yeah, that's a question I ask 
myself a lot is, you know, if I'm, I'm having a response to something and maybe my initial knee jerk judgment of that is like this response doesn't make sense or this response is disproportionate or how I'm thinking about this, you know, there's something wrong with that. If I stop and ask myself, like, how is this protecting me or, you know, what's right about thinking about it this way? What makes sense about that? What's smart about that? It starts to create a little bit of space. Well, so I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here because there's a topic, as you know, that I've been really, really excited to to ask you about. There's a couple actually, but one in particular, you you did a post about how there's this kind of misconception that if if we just let children cry it out, it teaches them to self-soothe. And I've heard that a lot as I've been researching, you know, different methods of sleep training and, you know, how you're supposed to approach that. And it's sort of confusing because I hear a lot of conflicting philosophies on this topic. And so I would just love to hear you address that because I feel like, you know, at some point we have to learn how to self-soothe as humans. It's a good skill. But, you know, at what stage is that developmentally appropriate? Like, these are the kinds of questions I have. So I would love to hear you comment on that. Yes. You know, Iris, I think this is a very sensitive topic for people because I think as parents, we're always trying to do the best that we can. So this is not, uh, you know, not in any way trying to minimize the frustration that a lot of parents go through, especially when they're working parents and they have so much to deal with. So I can see the appeal, you know, uh, of sleep training the baby so that they can sleep for longer and the parent can get more rest. Yeah. Um, there are different methods that, you know, address this. And one of them is commonly referred to as the cry it out method, you know, and I mm-hmm. think that people need to know that a lot of these studies that have been done on sleep training are not done on the cry it out method, which is literally where the parent just leaves the child to cry it out on their own until mm-hmm. they stop crying, you know, Um the only way babies have of communicating with an adult is through crying. This is the, they, they can, they literally cannot tell you what's going on. So when we're leaving a child to cry it out because we might think that their needs are met, you know, we fed them, we changed them, they should be okay. Um, if they're crying, they need something. Right. You know, and there's no way, no way to spoil a baby by attending mm-hmm. to their needs too much. And and I know this is a difficult conversation, but I think that's an it's an important conversation because we are not really aware of what's happening to ch- our children's nervous system. We're not we're, we're just leaving them out to cry. And we're not attending to them. Yeah, it's so tricky. And it's something you talked about is that, you know, what, how children learn to self-soothe over time is by being in the presence of a regulated adult. And so that's, it just immediately I'm like, and you know, my baby's on the way. So I haven't experienced this firsthand with my own child, but I'm imagining sometimes these things are really at odds. It's like, if you really want to regulate yourself, you need good sleep. You need to be tending to your own nervous system, but then 
you know, if your, your child is crying, you don't want them to get too dysregulated. So I can just see there would be a lot of instances where those two things might be in conflict. And that just sounds, I guess you just have to make on the fly, you know, calculations as to what's the higher order priority here. But yeah, it just sounds really difficult. And this may be something that there's a clear answer to, and maybe it's not, but it's like, at what point does it become developmentally appropriate for children to be able to self-soothe? You know, because mm-hmm. when they're newborns, they have no capacity to do that, obviously. And then yeah. at some point that develops. You know, Iris, um, from what I've read, okay, from what the research says right now, it's um, developmentally appropriate around four months hmm. to to start sleep training. But by sleep training, um, it doesn't mean just letting the child cry until they yeah. fall asleep. It's being with the child, checking the child, witnessing their pain, the child knowing that you're there, even though you've tried to meet their needs and you can't for whatever reason, it's not happening, that they still have a presence of someone, Mm. right? You know, I think the most important question with this also is like, where did we learn that children or the babies need to self-soothe, right? Mm. That this will happen eventually because trust me, by the time they learn how to walk, they want nothing to do with you. (laughs) (laughs) Doing their own thing, yeah. Yeah, so it's a... So yes, it's, it's good for our nervous system to learn to regulate. But I think that we're entering like a tricky territory when we begin exploring this at a, in the first year of life, life, which we understand to be so crucial in a person's yeah. development. Personally, I think if a person can tune into a child's needs or be present, even when they're not able to regulate or calm the child down, that's the best thing because there's there's no need for a child to learn to regulate their nervous system by themselves the first year of life. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, that's hard even for adults, you know, <laughs> like, and we expect little infants to be able to do this. It sounds a little unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I guess there's this sort of calculation that I was sort of alluding to and, and I think I mentioned I talked to my friend Aaron Steinberg, who's a coach about this at length, and he has two young boys. And this other factor to kind of, you know, add to this equation is, you know, the children's sleep too. And so I guess that's what, like, if they are getting good sleep, then that's good for their health. And then we're getting more sleep, which is good for our health. And so, yeah, I just don't even know how you make these kinds of calculations. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? So the, you know, like in many, many different cultures, like the parents just follow the rhythms of the child intuitively, you know? And so this is not even a concept for many cultures, this concept of sleep training, you know? And I honestly... I I understand why a lot of parents need this. You know, you have a lot of parents needing to enter the workforce. I mean, gosh, like some people don't even get the six weeks off, 
you know, for maternity or paternity leave. But I honestly, like, this is something that I haven't researched where this idea of sleep training started, you know? Mm. Because at the end of the day, it I think it goes back to the needs of the adults. Right. You know? And I think we often do that when it comes to children, that we consider the needs of the adults more than we consider the needs of the, the children. Personally, I don't believe that always works. <laughs> yeah. Um. And like I, I, I want to also be sensitive to parents because I know like this this is such a hard topic. So I know I, there are, there are a lot of parents who need to do this, and if it's for your own sanity, if like you have to work and you need to sleep train, it's better for your baby to sleep train and go through the stress of doing that than having a stressed parent because they can't sleep, right? But ideally, if you're able to, and if you can, um, in that first year of life, the child, the the baby is, it's very intuitive, the process When I say intuitive, is like the baby will lead you to where, right. what it needs. If it needs to be held and it's comfort, then it will tell you that. And it will feel like it will calm down when you hold them. Yeah. If it needs um, their diaper change and you do that, then it will stop crying when that need get need gets met, you know? Right. Yeah. This is such a common thing that you hear in one of my teachers, like his pet peeve is people calling children fussy because his whole thing, um, his name is Brad Kammer, is that, you know, children aren't fussing, they're communicating. There's like you were saying earlier, you know, this is how children at this age, you know, we don't have language developed yet. And so this is our, our one tool to really be able to, to communicate. And so And of course, it's exasperating when you're exhausted and your child is crying and you're not sure why. So I get that part of it completely. But it's also, like you said, it's like they're asking for something. They're not just doing it for no reason. They need something from us that they don't have the capacity yet to provide for themselves. Yes. And what happens when a child is just left alone and you're not even attempting to meet a need to me that's one of the biggest questions right because we know that there are like case studies on children that will eventually stop crying if they don't have anyone coming when they when they cry and now we're talking about cases of severe neglect not just like leaving your baby to cry it out but For instances of actually leaving your child to cry it out, that stress your child is enduring when no one is coming, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're there with your child uh, when you're sleep training and th- when they're crying, I think it's, a, uh, it's still... My mind goes to, okay, like if a baby needs to be held and needs that comfort and they have you there, at least they have your presence so they so they can regulate with your presence, but only if you're calm, right? Not if you're frustrated. Right. 
Um, but if you're calm, but then also it really is sending that message, right? That you're there, that you have this, that you can provide, but you won't. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, the data is just not there to show. Obviously, we have to have very sophisticated uh, uh, ways to measure this. But and I, yeah, I'm I'm sure it'll be done. But I don't think that's healthy for a baby's nervous system. Developmentally, their first year to the the first year of life, they're meant to do that. They're mm-hmm. meant to sleep you know, different hours, they're not, it really depends on the baby, but a lot of them are not sleeping, um, long gaps, you know, uh, personally, I remember my son woke up, um, like every two, well, actually one hour and 45 minutes oh, wow. <laughs> for the four, mo- four months of life. And I didn't know about sleep training, you know, I was introduced to sleep training when my son was two and I was trying to teach him to sleep independently and this is another experience and I don't know if you want to talk about this um, right now but this is another experience that we have had so many parents reach out when I wrote about it that said you know what I'm so glad that you're talking about this because sleep training was traumatizing for me oh wow interesting yeah and I that was the case for me for my Mm -hmm. with my son um when I I I did that sleep training. I didn't just let him cry it out. I would go to his bedroom. I would be there um, next to him. I would pat him on the back. And he would know that I was, you know, going to... He, he knew that eventually when he fell asleep, I was going to exit the room. So every night when I did this, he would wake up in my bed. <laughs> and mind <laughs> you, like... Anyway, like um, the the first year he slept in his crib, but the sec- we moved to a new house, so we had like a playpen, and so he jumped in bed. He started jumping in bed, and so he got used to doing that, to like cold sleeping. But that age, like I that period, I wish I hadn't sleep trained. I wish mm. that I could take that time back, and I have heard this from so many parents who have that and say, you know, it was just very traumatic for me. And now as I look back at it, like I regret it. And and they also talk about what they feel the impact is. Was it an impact? I can't really, it's just more anecdotal. But um, I do have a lot of people who shared stories about how they felt mm. those stages impacted their children and them. Yeah. Well, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about like, how you're conceptualizing this are you kind of wishing you had done it differently more from just like a like a heartfelt maternal kind of perspective or is it more of like you have clinical reasons why you wish you had done it differently or maybe both um but just so that I have a better understanding of of why you wish you had done it differently yeah so just to be clear like I didn't sleep train right like the first year um it was very natural um and then that sec that second year, it's twofold because one, it felt like it wasn't an intuitive process for me to sleep train. I don't want to speculate too much on this, but I do wonder if it comes from the fact that that I don't come from a culture where we sleep train. Mm-hmm. And so I do wonder about this because 
honestly, I do have this theory. Don't quote me on this, but I have <laughs> noticed that a lot of parents tend to do what is familiar to them. So we normalize sure. that. So whether that comes from what we experience or what the culture, you know, that we're raised in, but I think a lot of our personal experience comes naturally. So to me and my husband, we were not sleep trained. So we organically just follow his cues. Now, when I learned about sleep training, it did not feel like an intuitive process for me. It felt Mm -hmm. like I was doing what the research told me to do because I had read it back then and cried out that it was good for the babies and or that the the but yeah the uh, children and it was good for them to have their routine and all of this right and when i did it during that process i did feel like a bad mom mm-hmm. you know i felt like i was my my son was crying for me and i wasn't attending to his needs and i was ignoring And I just Mm. like I I can get emotional when I talk about this because it was kind of like a traumatic experience for me to to do that. And and then after years after really understanding about the nervous system and how human beings are wired and how our early experiences really shape our personality how I kind of like breathe and live this information. Then it was like, oh my God, like I can tell the impact on his nervous system now. And I can see it in real life because um, he ended up not sleeping in that room where I try to sleep train. I had to move him to a different room. You know, I, I he was more anxious about night. Um, all of these little things that I know um came either came as a result or were reinforced by that um, episode of sleep training. Yeah. Again, this is just my personal experience. You know, I'm not saying this is the experience of anyone else, but this is what I did notice. And so that those are the two reasons that I do regret it. I've had to do a lot of work to kind of like undo some of those early experiences. And we, know that because the brain is wiring super fast the first few years of life what happens between birth and one year old is like super like crucial because your attachment is developed you're wiring your attachment this is why like to me it's like do we really want to want to be testing right on that first year when we know that it's so crucial for attachment what works and what doesn't but really from zero to six, you, you're 90% of your brain develops. So what happens there is crucial for a child's personality. Yeah. And also when you, when you include their genes, obviously you factor in their genes and, and, and their life experiences. If you have a sensitive child, it's very common for them to be more anxious, yeah. you know, when their nervous system is not regulated. Yeah, it's, gosh, it's such a bind because I feel like, you know, parents are are within this pretty rigid system or most of us who work are in pretty rigid systems of like, you know, this is when you're at work and this is, you know, when you sleep and everything has to be regimented in order to work. And then we're trying to shove kids <laughs> into that same system yeah. when they're not 
it's it's not natural. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's natural for any of us, yeah. honestly. But um, mm-hmm. it's especially not natural for them. And I mean, thank goodness there are things that can be done later to kind of unwind some of this dysregulation. But gosh, yeah, it's just it's really tricky. You know, I'm just thinking of myself. Um, you know, in the future, like I'll be in grad school and having to do my my practicum and all of that when my daughter is six months old. And so I'm just, you know, looking into the future and thinking about all the the potential challenges of that. And there's always trade-offs and compromises. And it's, it's just kind of sad because I feel like children end up really being affected by that. There's no great answers, I guess, unless we just, you know, drop everything and intend to them. But maybe that could have weird consequences as well. It just seems like... Yeah, I don't know. It's confusing. Yeah, I think, um, honestly, I I don't think you can spoil a child like at the beginning of life. You're talking about later years of brain development, you know, as you're developing their executive functioning. Um, They understand more of the implications of their behaviors. You know, like there's a lot that goes on in the later years years of life where it makes more sense for them to learn to self-regulate, you know, right. and, and we're, and I think when we talk about self-regulation, I often think about like permissive parents. Yeah. You don't want to be like that parent who's rescuing their child from every experience that they have and their own emotions so that as adults, they can't handle stuff on their own. Because if we go back to thinking like, why are, why are we, Raising children the way that we're raising them. The the hope is that as adults, they are able to have um, healthy relationships and they they live a healthy life, right? And healthy and happy and balanced. And in order for that to happen, there does need to be a balance in the way that we raise children. This is why um, authoritative, not authoritarian or permissive are the style of parent is the style of parenting that is more effective. I think when we, when it starts getting tricky is when we apply a lot of these rules to early, early development, because babies really do not have that level of awareness or they don't really need to be taught all the skills the first year of life. You know, you have like enough time to teach them that. And I also want to say that um, there's a lot of parents who are in the situation that you are Iris. Like I was too, you know, I I was a working mom and I was going to, I was finishing my, my bachelor's degree and I was doing my internship. Um, So that was fun. But, (laughs) but you know, I, I think sometimes people have the support and sometimes they don't. And so my my way of seeing things is always be do the best you can with what you have. Yeah. And sometimes the best that you can with what you have is to um, sleep train so that you can sleep and get some rest so that when you're awake, you can be a pe- better parent to your child because otherwise you're frustrated, you know, Um a baby also needs a regulated parent. That's very important. So it's not an easy black and white kind of thing. And it's not a one size fits all scenario. But I do feel that it's important to start changing the narrative about um, wanting to sleep, like sleep train um, babies from a young age, Um, especially 
if it's not necessary, right? right? Because they will learn. I promise you, even if you do nothing the first year, like they will sleep, they will learn to sleep on a schedule when yeah. they're, they have more of a capacity to self regulate. But those four, the first four months of life are really crucial. So they they do need somebody attending to them. They're every, every need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I've talked about this in some posts and articles and stuff, but babies literally will die if they don't get the care that they need. It's called hospitalism. You know, children who were in orphanages who are medically attended to, I know you know this, but just for the listeners, um, you know, they were getting all their basic needs met and still dying in, in large numbers. And they, you know, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And it's really, we need, we need that attunement from an adult. And if that's not present, that really is a life or death kind of threat for a child if they're not receiving that. And so the level of distress, it's easy for us as adults to kind of think like, Oh, well, I know they're fine. Like I know that, you know, they're going to get fed. They don't know that though. <laughs> so um, so I think it's important that we at least are aware of that and consider that that's what's going on within their, their little developing nervous systems. And it's just funny because it, funny is the wrong word, but it's interesting the way our culture thinks about this, because it's sort of like, if I can't remember it, then it didn't happen almost where, you know, people think like, well, well why would it matter what happened at my birth or why would it matter what happened to me when I was four months old? I don't remember any of that, but the, the ripple effects of, you know, what happens in our developing nervous systems really does make quite an impact. Yeah. Yeah, You know, um, that's such a great point, what you were talking about, because our perception of what is happening matters much more than what is actually happening. So when you when you said, you know, like as an adult, you might think the child is fine because nothing is happening. Well, their perception might not match what you see. And for their nervous system, what's happening doesn't matter as much as their perception of what is happening. Right. Um, the, the other thing with this is that Dr. Bruce Perry talks about this on his book, um, the, the Child Who Was Raised as a Dog. That's the title of the book. Um, that's something that has stayed with me and this has changed the way that I view like child development. He says that the first year of life has more impact. What happens in your first year of life? If you were mm, abused and mistreated the first year of life has more impact on a child's brain and development than the next, if, if they're treated well, the next 10 years of their life. Mm. So he made the comparison that if you have a child who went through severe trauma the first year of life, and then he had a good stable home for the next 10 years, that child actually had a worse um, prognosis than a child who had a great first year of life, like a good home and a nice environment. And then the next 10 years were abusive. Wow. This is how much that first year matters. And I think that's why we need to be having these conversations because 
obviously babies cannot come and talk about their experiences to us. And as adults, we need to be a little bit more analytical in how we view babies when they're developing, you know, and I know this happens in my culture um, a lot where people say, you know, like you're going to, Oh gosh, like I, I, I don't know the term in English, but in, in, in Spanish it's like embrasilarlo, you know, like you're going to get him used to being picked up hmm. um, if you hold him too much. Like that's a bad thing, right? And I will never forget when um, I was in a mommy group, you know, I was very invested when I was, <laughs> my baby was little. <laughs> and, uh, and this, and then there's um, this, this uh, other mom that said, you know, when they start walking, they're not going to want to be held. Developmentally, it's appropriate for them. You cannot hold a child too much. Actually, it builds secure attachment. Um, it builds safe attachment. And this is what I've learned, you know, from, from attachment theory. But actually, if you want a child who's better behaved, meet their needs early on. Because then if they build secure attachment... As they're growing old, uh, older, um, they're going to detach from you when it's time for them to begin exploring. They're going to have an easier time because they're not going to be insecure or unsafe in that attachment. Then yeah. if um, they develop an insecure attachment, what you will see then is that they have more anxiety towards leaving the parent or getting away from the parent when they're exploring, you know? So honestly, like if you want to spoil your baby, spoil the baby, <laughs> like there's nothing wrong with it. And I, it will yeah. do wonders for you and for the baby. If you're meeting their needs and trust me, just learn. I mean, just, it's important to also learn about the different parenting styles so that we don't lean into the permissive where we don't know. It's very common for parents to like forget that their children are growing. And so they don't know when they're able, you know, like now, Oh, they have the ability to do this on their own. I don't have to do it for them. Right. I think that's the line when as their babies are growing, that we just tend to do everything for them. And we just don't let the natural process of development happen that we can have an impact but other than that you know when it comes to attachments I say like just go for it <laughs> yeah that's that's good for me to hear um yeah because you do hear a lot of conversation more just like you know I just see it online and stuff about not wanting to be enabling and I think that's a really important distinction like there there is a point at which they they have more skills or like they need to be developing skills and so you want to step back and let them do that and express their own autonomy and and learn their own independence when it's time when they're wanting to do that and kind of following their lead with that but yeah I, I totally take your point that you can't, it's impossible to spoil a baby <laughs> I, yeah. I heard that so much growing up and it just you know, I feel it It gives you this sense that children are out on a mission to get you, you know, like you have mm. to make sure you keep them under control. And I have challenged over the last few years, I really have challenged this idea because I think that if we view parenting as wanting to make sure that children are a certain way, then we're not really attuning into who our children really are. And we mm. miss out a lot on 
really understanding who our children are and exploring and allowing them to explore that versus wanting us or, or becoming frustrated because things are not happening according to our timeline. Yeah. And I will say this, and I'm probably going to get back, like, backlash for this, but um, even, like, the medical community, you know, uh, they're, they push a lot, like, timelines um, that I, again, right, like, when, when I had my son, like, it didn't make sense to me. Like, the, the bottle, my son wasn't a bottle. Like, they wanted him to be weaned off at a year, and he wasn't ready at a year. And... I didn't understand why can babies feed on the breast for two, three years and why is it? And so then to me, it was more like, okay, like, what do I know? What signs do I notice in my kid when he, when I pull the bottle away or when I try to wean him off and he's not ready? It's hours of crying. Mm -hmm. And what happens with a parent? It's like I grow frustrated because the child is not working according to the timeline, right? Because we have right. all of these timelines of when things should be happening. And I think that is, it's a good guide for us to have, but it's a guide. I think our children are more of the guide that we should be following, obviously with a lot of parent education, because parenting and tradition is based a lot on what we already know. You know, so it might be tricky, but, um, but I do believe that a lot of the timelines that are scheduled for babies are, again, a lot of these are based on what the adults think it's appropriate for the babies, Right. You know, yeah, you don't. I mean, I'm starting to see more now that I'm really looking for it, but more about, you know, child led parenting where we're letting them teach us what they need and letting them teach us who they are rather than us trying to like mold them into who we think they should be. And mm-hmm. that just seems much better to me. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. which leads me, I do want to make sure we have time to talk about this sort of concept, because this, at least in my mind, fits very nicely, you know, when adults sort of superimpose their ideas of like, this is a good child, or this is a bad child, and this this child isn't behaving the way I expect them to, and therefore they're defiant, or therefore, you know, they're misbehaving, which is something I'm not a huge fan of, and I don't think you are either, <laughs> but um, I'd love to hear you, you talk about that a little bit, because I know you've talked about it online. You know, I think... It goes back to this idea that a lot of, uh, like, the big part of raising children goes back to the adult's comfort, you know, and the causing the least level of inconvenience for an adult. And that's just a reality of it. And I think that even from a very young age, babies can get labels, you know, as difficult or, um, or good babies. <clears throat> and I... We still have these conversations where it's like, oh, no, like I've had mine is just such a good baby. He will stay there for hours and he'll sleep for hours and you wouldn't even know they're there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and it's not that there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like there's every baby is different and they have different needs. And it it's perfectly okay if a baby does that. But that doesn't mean that the baby that has more needs is difficult it just means that they're going through more and they need more and so 
sometimes it tends to so what happens a lot is that when a child has more needs inevitably you're gonna have a parent who tends to be more frustrated because it is I do want to acknowledge that it is frustrating to not know what's happening with your baby and you don't know how to fix it and they're just crying because there are parents who do have babies who cry a lot. And I empathize a lot with that. That that must be really, really hard. Um, and it doesn't mean that the child is difficult. It's just It just means that they're going through a lot, you know? So changing the way that we see things, I think, can make it a little bit easier to empathize with our child that they're going they're having a difficult time and I think a lot of times as as children develop this keeps being the idea right where where like the good children are the children who sit still who don't go anywhere when you tell them not to go anywhere you know who um do as they're told and the bad kids are the kids who uh, challenge you. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that's really what it is. It's like, I'm challenged, therefore my child is bad. I mean, yeah. I know not all parents are like that, but you yeah. that. Like, um, don't talk back to me, right? Or, uh, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting when we start paying attention because a lot of the behaviors that adults do, they expect the children not to do. And I include myself in this. This has been something like a learning experience for me because I used to be really like, strict on with my tone because that's the way I thought like pa- good parents were, you know, like you were firm. And what the, what happened was that then when children actually had an opinion, which is actually like, let's just honor that, that a child tells you what they think after you are serious or strict <laughs> or they know or they think they might get in trouble. That is, is commendable, you know, because right. it's a, a trait that you want. It's a quality that you want in someone. When we start putting resistance, though, we do get into this dynamic where you're just arguing with the child. And then that becomes, for the child, a really strong fight, fight, um, defense mechanism, a fight mechanism that they would then replicate with other people in adulthood, you know? And for children who tend to be very sensitive, they're usually, they usually tend to be more anxious. So usually the kids that get the label of good kid, they just care more about keeping the relationship with you and they want to please you. And that's why they follow commands so well, because they don't want to mess up. But that's not necessarily the healthiest thing for a child to do, you know. And so I think I really subscribe to the beliefs of conscious parenting, you know, just being really aware of our own things, really being attuned to what's happening with our child and and um, honoring their process while establishing a container, because it's so important also to. Make sure that you establish safety for a child um, so that they feel contained and they don't feel like they like they, they need someone to provide structure so that they have a guide. But they also need freedom to explore 
who they are. And that can only happen if you're willing to be a parent who allows them to explore that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been listening to this book called The Conscious Parent. I don't know. Have you ever read that book? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm really enjoying it so much. It's so lovely. Um, Mm. Yeah. And I feel like she does a nice job sort of painting a picture of what being child-led can look like and and creating that. Because I think you're right, like having a container so that they just don't feel boundless and uncontained. That doesn't feel safe for a child. But, you know, within that structure, giving them some some wiggle room to express themselves and ask questions and, and all of those things and, and be sensitive. Like what a lovely quality for someone to have, to be sensitive to the world. And I, you know, I I was a very sensitive child and I know that was really challenging for my own parents. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. My husband and I are both sensitive people. So I imagine our daughter will be too, (laughs) And, um, gosh, I really hope not to, to, to squash that. Um, cause I think it, you know, even though it has its challenges, it, it does make us very like in tune with the world around us. And I think we, we need people who can be in touch with what's happening. You know, I was one of those kids, you know, um, my mom, would always say as an adult you always hear it as an adult it's like oh uh you were such a good kid (laughs) I didn't have to repeat anything to you like you did I told you and you did it you know and and my my son is the same way so so Mm -hmm. I it's it's definitely like a um learning experience of just allowing that sensitivity I love that you know I love that part of of my my son and I really honor that and I and I I think it's a gift you know but it also can bring a lot of anxiety um because you are so aware of other people you don't want to disappoint others you you know you want to keep the connection so so really being aware of that balance, you know, I think anytime I, I talk about parenting, um, it's more from the lens of like, it, I want to know the things that I needed because I want to know that they're valid needs now that I need to work on. And mm-hmm. then for my child, right? Not in a sense of like, why did my parents didn't do this? Um, but they didn't have the tools, but now I'm developing these tools for them. And it would have been really helpful, like for me, if somebody would have told me that it's not, that it's okay if other people were not okay, right. you know, that it wasn't my job to make others okay. And this is a message that I try to communicate often to my son, you know, and I, that it's a beautiful thing that you're this sensitive and it's also, it's also good for you to know that you don't have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, yeah. you know? Yeah, because that is a, a very heavy burden for anyone, yeah. but especially a child. Oh, yeah. And, and a child will easily do that because from their perspective of the world, they're just so attuned to everything that is happening, you know, and they want to make sure that what they can make better, they, they do, or they can fix whatever they can fix. And as adults, I think 
again, if we if we look at it from the lens of like, oh, um, the, the needs of the adults, right? Like, if we look at it from the, that lens, it's so easy to raise a child who is so attuned to your needs. But at the end of the day, what happens with the child when they feel so responsible for your needs? Yeah, it's something that I'm thinking about just because I imagine there might be some parents listening to this thinking like, well, shoot, like I really screwed up here or like there's something I really did wrong. And I know I'm going to make a lot of mistakes because that's inevitable. Something I've gotten really interested in is just this idea of, of rupture and repair and like mm-hmm. how how that can actually strengthen connection. And I guess I don't have a really well-formed question, but I guess what is your perspective on how how parents can can repair these rifts that are created just from these inevitable mistakes that we make maybe we're overwhelmed or we don't know better or whatever the case may be. Yeah. You know, it's, that's such an important point because I am the last person to want to parent shame. I know that even as I'm having this conversation, people might say like, well, this entire conversation is about that because it might feel like that to them, you know, but, but, you know, um, I think that we only can do what we know and we do the best we can with what we have. And a lot of us will make mistakes even after we know how to do better, you know, and it's just this journey of parenting. But it's so important to work on repairing, meaning identifying what are the things that we could have done different and knowing how to do different moving forward and knowing how to acknowledge these things in front of our children. And this Mm -hmm. is so important because we don't want to be like, there are these instances where parents make a mistake with their children and then they they regret it so much that they end up unloading all of their emotions on the child and apologizing. Yes. That's not healthy. That no, not. can that can disorganize a child because it's sending mixed messages. That's not repair. Yeah. Thank you, you know? for sharing that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. this is something that comes up in my work a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime you are, anytime the child feels responsible for your emotions, it's not helpful to the child, if, if I put it that way. Yeah. The way we repair is by being, like you, you have a plan. You acknowledge what happened. You mention what you plan on doing different and you communicate it and you move on. You know, and also if if you can, you want to explore what it meant for the child and what it caused on the child, but you don't talk about what it, what happened like for you or you don't, you, you can say, you know, something like, you know what, it made me sad when I realized I did this, but don't go into like, oh my God, I was so sad that this happened and it made me feel this way when I did that. Because then again, like it's turning more like the focus on your emotions than the child's emotion. Yeah, because that's so overwhelming for a child when it's kind of become self-flagellating because then it's almost like the parents trying to get the child to comfort them and that feels awful. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's not to say don't process your feelings because that would be really helpful, but doing that with another adult. 
Exactly. Whether it's your partner or a therapist or your friend or whoever, but just with an adult rather than the child. Because, yeah, I've had clients where that was like such a part of their childhood where their parents would just be saying, oh, I'm such a horrible parent and like, you know, I'm the worst. And then the child feels like they have to comfort the parent, even though the parent really hurt them. Mm -hmm. So it's just very confusing for a young person. So... Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that usually that it's very common for us to walk that tricky line when it comes to parenting. And this is why I tell people, you know, like learn about parenting through reading because it's not intuitive. I, for years, I was led to believe that parenting was just an intuitive process that you would just know what to do. And no, we don't just know what to do. We default to what we know. And right. a lot of the times what we know is not the best that we can do. So also learning that you're going to make a lot of mistakes in this process. It's okay. One, because even when you do know the information, it might be hard to access at times and that will happen. No uh, research says that you only have to be, I mean, the the bar is pretty low. Like you only have to get it right (laughs) about 30% of the time. (laughs) So, but, but then repair, that's why repair is so important, right? And how do we repair? We repair, we, we, it's, it's a very straightforward process. You're not responsible for that. It wasn't okay for me to do that. You know, I will try to do better. I'm working on this. I'm sorry. When, when I get angry in that way and I talk to you in that way, it's not because you're responsible for it. I, I'm working on finding better ways to communicate. Yeah. That's it. And um, and also checking on your children. What does this cost for them, right? Like, when I talk to you in this way, like, what does it bring up, you know? Well, I, like, it, it gets me uh, scared that you're going to do this, you know? And then you can have those conversations. But it's more on a focus on the child and the experience of the child. And I... One thing that I do that I started doing with my son some years ago that I always encourage parents to do is leave your ego aside and check in with your parents, your kids to see how you're doing. They can tell you how you're doing if you ask (laughs) them. And so asking them about (coughs) what am I getting right and what am I getting wrong? What are the areas that I can improve on? And they will give you feedback. They will tell. They're very honest. (laughs) If, If it feels safe. Right. If, yeah. if they know what response you're hoping for, then it defeats the whole point. So it has to feel very safe for them to just be like, you know, like, I think you, you're too much on your phone or you, mm. you don't, uh, I don't know, I want, I want more home, home cooked meals or whatever <laughs> that is, you know? I just am trying to imagine how that would have felt for me as a child to be asked that and it would have, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but it would have been really great. <laughs> yeah. It would have been great. Yeah. Because that's respecting them as a as a person, you know, respecting that they have a world of their own and a subjective experience of their own and needs and all those things. So yeah. I feel like the more we can honor that, the better. I don't know where I heard um and then if you think about it this way, it's like they're your little consumers, right? Like <laughs> they're consuming this, like you're the parent, but they're they're the ones who are experiencing the parenting. So how are you doing? Yeah, I I think sometimes as parents we we 
become scared that our kids are going to have too much control over us. And I hear this over and over, you know, and I, it feels like this black and white thing. Either my kids have control over me or I, I control them. And I'm just saying it doesn't have to be either. You can have a healthy, balanced relationship with your child because the relationship that you're building now, you're building it so that when you're adults, you have a healthy relationship with them and you teach them what it feels like to be in a healthy relationship. Because as you're being their parent, you are teaching them through their relationship with you what to expect yes. in relationships. So this is something that I always keep in mind or try to <laughs> keep in <Sure>. mind <laughs> is how would I want somebody to communicate this to my son? Mm. You know, and am I doing it in that way? Am I teaching him when I talk to him um, the way that it's okay for him to be treated? You know, and this is also why I think it's so important for as parents to do our own work. And when I work with people, I always, I think, like I usually send parents to therapy (laughs) because we have our own things that we need to work through to show up in the way that we want for our children. And sometimes that can be really, really, really hard. When we have all of these automatic responses with all of these triggers that sometimes we're not even aware of. Uh, We project a lot of our own things onto our kids, meaning like the things we desire um, were happening or happened with us. We project them and we kind of like put that on our children. So if we're not, if we don't become aware of these things, we're constantly doing these things to our children they're outside of our awareness and it really distorts their view of healthy relationships and what to expect in relationships. Yeah, so true. And I think also sort of the opposite can happen where we can try to do exactly the opposite of what our parents did, which may also not be ideal because it's not really responding to the child. It's more reacting to our parents. I think that happens quite a lot because there are so many parents who say like, well, I you know, my parents were terrible. Like I never want to be like them. So I'm going to do exactly the opposite. And rather than just checking in with themselves or checking in with their child to see what's needed in this situation. So that's a a pitfall. And I know I'm going to be, you know, navigating both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I talk about being like so key to read and learn information on healthy parenting which I'm not blind to the fact that in psychology, we've gotten a lot of things wrong about parenting. (laughs) (laughs) But if I'm being really honest with this, like when we look at that, when we look at parenting, it's not ever one extreme or the other. And I think mostly for things in general, like this is the rule. It's usually a balance, but you're not going to know that balance from your experience. Because like you said, you might go to the other complete side and then you might fall onto, you know, so like for parents who had really permissive parents, they might be really strict and that's not healthy. Or for parents who had strict parents, they usually tend to be really permissive right. and that's not healthy for the children. So learning about it and knowing that it's not going to feel natural because if, if you grew up with a very strict parent, for example, 
and now you're trying to set rules because you know, or, or a structure that might feel controlling to you and that might feel similar to what you went through, although it's very different. Um, but it might trigger that in you. So your body might want to not set any rules or expectations because any at all might be feel like a trigger. This is why it's so important to work through or past experiences so that they don't keep showing up or that at least we're aware when they show up and they're, we're not just in this unconscious process of repeating different patterns, but still not healthy. Yeah. I know I didn't ask you this in advance, but are there any books or resources that just come to your mind when you think of ones that you really enjoyed? Yeah. So, I mean, Dr. Shafali, um, I, I might pronounce her name, last name incorrectly, Tazbadi, uh, con- The Conscious Parent and The Awakened Family. Mm. I would say that probably any book written by her, she's amazing. And she has been probably one of the people who have helped me hmm. understand children um, the most. And there's, for Spanish speakers, there's an Argentinian author and his his work also, he, he does a lot of work with his son, his adult hmm. son, who's also a psychiatrist now. His book is called um, El Difícil Vínculo Entre Padres e Hijos. And I don't think there's a copy in English yet, but that is a lot of the same concepts, a lot of like the um, uh, letting your child lead and mm-hmm. provide while you provide a safe structure and container, mm-hmm. which I think it's key, you know? Yeah. Parent the child that is in front of you, not the child that you have in your mind. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they, they're they really good about talking about that type of parenting. Great. Well, thank you for those. You're welcome. So I wish we had more time. <laughs> There's so much stuff that I want to ask you. But the thing that I, I've been in, really enjoying asking everyone just to wrap up the, the episode is, what is something that is making you feel hopeful lately? Hopeful for the future for therapy, yeah. For gender, I mean, maybe for you personally, for for life, (laughs) for the planet, Mm -hmm. for therapy, really anything that's making you feel hopeful. You know, I have to say, my mind automatically went to therapy, like just to the profession, the the field. I am super excited and to to just see people having more conversations about these topics, you know, and I feel like we're in a, that learning curve when maybe we're not going to get get it all right. Um, I see some people complaining about like, oh, well, these people are saying wrong information and all of that. And I get it. Like, we have to be smart consumers when it comes to, I think, with anything, right? We have to be smart consumers because there will always be people trying to sell us something and people who are not providing accurate information. And it doesn't matter what field it is. We'll see it with every field. But now that we, like our field, I feel it's on social media and we are talking, we're having more of these conversations and people are actually having more awareness of what mental health is and we're normalizing it more. I'm really hopeful that people in the future will just see therapy as something very normal, just like going to the doctor, you know, and I mm-hmm. I really can't wait for the day when everyone will talk openly 
about whether it's just symptoms or diagnosis, whatever feels better, better for them, but that it's just part of life. It's just part of being yeah. a human. So I am very hopeful about that. And, and I'm actually, I think that's one of the reasons that I love Instagram so much and social media in general, but I have learned so much from other professionals and continue to learn and, and just seeing the impact of the work. It's, yeah, it's so humbling, you know? I agree. Yeah, it is so refreshing to see people engaging in these types of conversations in a public setting. And as much as stigma absolutely does still exist, it does feel like the tides are turning a little bit. And especially with younger generations, it does seem to become or seem to be becoming more commonplace to just casually say like, oh yeah, I was talking to my therapist the other day. And, you know, in my parents' generation, that was not done. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like things are moving in the right direction yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I know that um, sometimes, and I might have even thought about, I think at the beginning I have, I had thought about it where sometimes people might be looking or hearing things and they might think, oh, like there's something like this fits for me. Maybe I have this. I think as when we're consuming information, I think it's important to know, okay, like if, if this might be the case, then this is the door for you to go and look for services, right? It's not, uh, this is it. This is like this person on Instagram or, or on another platform is going to give me all the knowledge that I need. Because I can tell you, like, like there's no post no matter how much, like how, how connected you feel to that, they won't understand the nuance of your personal story. And although, uh, like, I know that not everybody can go see a professional, but maybe just talking about it to somebody else that you trust and that it's safe, it just opens up the door into having a conversation about something that you had never talked about. And I, I love that aspect of having information more accessible and then if somebody can go to seek professional help that that will is like absolutely like to me the the best thing one can do because yeah being in front of someone who can hold space for you in a way that maybe you've never experienced um is very special I agree. And thank you so much for bringing that in. Yeah, because I think it is easy to to read something and feel connected to it and be like, okay, this is all I need to know about it. <laughs> and like you said, it's a doorway. And and so, yeah, taking that, that next step really deepens it because it takes it from maybe that intellectual knowledge of like, okay, now I understand how this works to actually applying it to yourself. Yeah, and yeah, that is in itself, right? Like, so there's so much there in the sense that if you understand yourself a little bit more than you understood yourself in the past, then that's valuable, regardless of what you do with it next, right? If it helps you in any way feel better about this, leave an unhealthy relationship, start asking more questions, you know? about what this can be, to me, that's, that's progress that to me, I think that's, even if somebody sat down with that information, or just took in that information, and didn't do anything for the five next five years with that, 
the seed would still be planted. Now you have information you didn't have before and the way that you look at things will change just based on that. And whenever you're ready, when that time comes, if it's either because you got more information or you actually, this was on your mind long enough to do something about it, then, you know, like, it doesn't matter that it wasn't all that you needed then. What matters is that you understood yourself a little bit better. And maybe in that moment, for whatever reason, you didn't seek the help, and that's okay. But if you can, let that be that piece of information that opens you, that opens the door for you to find out more. But then again, everyone has a different journey. I know that I've had certain issues about myself that I could not speak to anyone about for years. And I, which is not the time it was, I wasn't ready and it was, and that's okay too. You know, we can, we can honor that, but then reading things about this and understanding it more helped me even when I wasn't taking action. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to engage with your content and and learn more from you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, My Instagram page is where I post most content. It's uh, my, my handle is this is Yolanda Renteria. I am, I actually opened a few spots. I'm working with some people uh, for therapy in Arizona and yeah okay. and I so I do both a uh, somatic approaches and therapy in Arizona I'm licensed only in Arizona but I also do uh like I have, have my own business that I'm trying to start barely because I'm working full-time um yeah. of coaching so I so to do oh, somatic cool. processing yeah but I'm only right now taking very few people I have a, a handful of people um, because I am still working for full time. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm excited to hear yeah. that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have a website soon. So I'm going to post it. They're working on it right now. So I'm going to post it when it's ready. And I'm going to post a link tree or something where you go and yeah. see all the... Yeah. I have a lot <laughs> of plans. I just need to see about my time. But I'm planning to do courses for yeah. people... I saw that you have a course out, right? Oh, that's yeah, amazing. I do. Yeah, well, that's, I'm I'm so excited to hear about that. Just sit, let me know when you have things that you want me to share and I will happily share okay. them. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really, really respect your work and it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Talking Thank to you. you. Likewise.